of profound truth-telling, discovering how we have been harmed and how we are implicated in harming. We are naming with clarity the everyday and ritualized violences that people face. Underneath all of this opening sits a quiet question in wait. It might be the hardest question. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? Where do we need to change now that we know? Do we choose comfort over challenge? Do we choose fracture over repair? My conversation today with Kazu covers a lot of ground, but really circles around these fundamental inquiries. When harm happens, when violence exists, where are you and what are you willing to do to repair? Kazuhaga is the founder of the East Point Peace Academy. He's a core member of the Ahimsa Collective, and he's the author of Healing Resistance, a radically different response to harm. Kazu shares with us the principles that we can choose to hold on to to practice when things fall apart. I really, really enjoyed being in this conversation with a fellow facilitator and someone who is such a thoughtful, generous leader. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Kazu. I feel really excited that you're here to talk with us today. It's been a long time. It has been a while. Yeah, thanks so much (laughs) for having me. So the kind of impetus, I guess, for this podcast is that I wanted to gather people together who felt like they were offering some way forward or some piece of what the future could be to share kind of the texture, the the richness of what they see, that experience. And so I always start off each episode with the question, where are we right now? And asking that to you um, from whatever vantage point you want to offer it. But how would you describe this moment? Where are we? What is it important to be paying attention to? What do you see? Yeah, we are in interesting times for so many different reasons, right? I mean, obviously with the pandemic yeah. um, and everything that's happened in the last year, but even before that, I think we saw patterns of what's happening right now starting to emerge for a long time. Um, obviously with, with uh, like climate stuff, I think we're in a really precarious moment in human history, right? And I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that we are in a very particular moment in the history of our species where we have some big choices to make and a lot of opportunities come with that. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is I, I do a lot of work in, in trauma healing. And I think we're witnessing a time when a lot of our traumas that we've been holding as a nation, as a collective, is really starting to manifest. And, and come to the surface on a collective level. I think um, having had a president like Trump for the last four years, and you know, I see him and, and I see how deeply traumatized he is. And I think having someone who's so clearly operating from a place of trauma on such a public stage has awakened the trauma of a lot of his supporters. And so you look at a lot of Trump supporters and a lot of what's happening on the right, And it's like trauma responses happening at scale. And I think it's also happening at all on the left too, right? Like when all we're doing is dealing with the pandemic Mm -hmm. and supporting people in crises and and witnessing uh, incident after incident and after incident of Black people getting murdered by the police, like those are all traumatizing things. And I think we can oftentimes start to operate from a trauma response as well. And so I think we're witnessing a moment where like it's trauma meeting trauma out in in the streets. And so um, a time when we really need to be doubling down on our own, 
healing work and on working on our own trauma and, and, and really looking at what does that look like to be doing that work for ourselves and in our communities, but also at scale as we engage in systemic change work as well. Like what is, you know, uh, a trauma informed resistance movement look like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel really excited to dig into that question because I, I, I think that is a question or a series of questions I'm often sitting in too. How do we heal from trauma and how do we heal from trauma at scale? In your writing and in your work, you uh, bring forward this concept of beloved community. And I want to get into it a little bit and then talk about kind of what it takes to do it. But first, I just want to just hear from you about beloved community. I was you know, introduced to this concept through, you know, the work of Dr. Martin Luther King and also one of my mentors, uh, Auntie Puanani Burgess in Hawaii, who um, does a lot of work around beloved community. And uh, I I just wanted to hear from you, like, why is that concept so important to your work right now? And when you just talked about all the kind of fissures and breaks and challenges that we have, why is it that you reach for something that could feel so challenging or far away. Yeah, so beloved community originally was a, a term coined by an American theologian named Josiah Royce and was popularized by Dr. King. And I think when King spoke to it, you know, he spoke about a world that all people can find healing and all people can find belonging and all people can fulfill our potential as human beings. And to me, it's such an important term because it speaks to the idea of interdependence, that we live in this interdependent world where my liberation genuinely depends on the liberation of all life. And, you know, when I talk about beloved community, a lot of people oftentimes say things like, oh, well, for me, beloved community is my church community or my organizing community or my family. And, you know, I oftentimes want to challenge people into thinking a little bit wider because I think when Dr. King was talking about beloved community, you know, oftentimes talk about how building beloved community isn't about loving the people that are easy to love, right? It's not about loving the people that are already in your sort of loving community, but it's about stretching our capacity for compassion and empathy and understanding and recognizing that we're not going to be free until all people are free. And when we say all people, it's literally all people. And so, you know, coming from, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Buddhist communities and studying Buddhist Buddhism and, and doing Buddhist practices. And so much of that is grounded in this unwavering faith that we are dependent on each other for survival, for healing, for reconciliation. Um, and so we're really trying to figure out, you know, I have more questions than answers, but it's like, there's a lot of harm being done in this world. And how do we hold people accountable while acknowledging that the person that is committing that act of harm is also an, a, a, a part of this web of humanity? And I think that idea of beloved community forces us to, to ask those questions. That kind of takes me right into kind of the non-animal uh, meat, vegan meat or something of what I wanted to talk to you about today. Conflict. I do a lot of facilitation around conflict transformation and it, it feels like the greatest barrier we have to living in a beloved community or practicing beloved community is, is how we currently navigate conflict. Um, the way we engage in conflict now 
And I wonder if you could just uh, talk to that, how you, how you think about conflict, how you practice conflict. I know you do a lot of work around conflict. Just what do you see about conflict, how we currently hold it and its relationship to um, this beloved community concept? Yeah, one of my favorite quotes that I've been repeating nonstop over the last couple of years is a quote that says, conflict is the spirit of the relationship asking itself to deepen. And I've never been able to, to fully track it down. I believe it comes from Maladoma Somme. Um, but I think at its best, conflict is an opportunity for us to really deepen in our own understanding of how our own trauma manifests, um, how we deepen in relationship with ourselves, with each other. Uh, you know, I, one of the things that I learned in studying King and nonviolence is that things like yelling and fighting, those things aren't signs of conflict. They're signs that a conflict has been mismanaged. And within mm -hmm, each conflict mm -hmm. is, is a gift. It's a possibility for us to really look at, um, yeah, how we're relating to each other and how can we do it better and how can we heal from all of the wounds? Like I know when I get into an argument with my partner about who does the dishes, it's not just about the dishes. It's like generations of harm that I'm bringing into that moment. And so when mm -hmm. a conflict erupts, it's an opportunity for us to really slow down and, and figure out what are all of the factors that are coming into play in this moment? And how can we begin to tease them out? How can we begin to heal through them so that next time um, there's less of that history coming into the picture? And I think that's the case when, you know, my partner and I might be getting into a conflict about cleaning the house. But it's also the case in larger social conflicts when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, right? It's 400 years of history that we have to unpack. The line three resistance that's going on in Minnesota right now, it's, it's 500 years of colonization that we're having to unpack. It's not just about this one um, pipeline. And so, yeah, I think each conflict is an opportunity for us to, to go back into the past and really look at everything that we're bringing into the present moment and to heal all of that, what we're bringing into the present moment. That's so rich. I mean, it feels like that is the gift. A conflict can reveal culture. That's what I always say. A conflict in an organization or in a, with a group of people, it's revealing to you what's at play here, what's active here, what's not being addressed, what needs to be addressed. And there's a, a great gift in that. There's a revealing in that. And then there's also this piece that you're saying. It's like hundreds of years of conflict, you know, to put it almost lightly, can be embedded in a moment. The history can kind of live in each moment. How have you seen or how have you facilitated or opened up a space for conflict that has been able to hold the kind of historical force of how that can come rushing in when you have conflict, but also be really rooted in the present moment. Do you have any, anything to say about how we might do that? Yeah. You know, I'm involved in a lot of restorative justice dialogues and, and circles and, and, and that world. And I think sometimes one of the mistakes that we make in engaging in conflict is we rush too quickly into bringing the two sides of conflict um, together. Absolutely. Before we've had an opportunity to do our own work. You know, um, I have the, the privilege and the honor to work with a lot of incarcerated communities and facilitate what are called victim offender dialogues, which are dialogues between incarcerated people and the people that they harm. And oftentimes, you know, these are obviously extreme cases of, 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 of physical violence, but we oftentimes spend as much as two years preparing 
for that dialogue with each side. And then sometimes at the end of the two years, we decide that they're not ready for that conversation, right? Because when you're talking about harm that a person has experienced in their own lives, as well as beginning to unpack how that is related to 500 years of colonization, it's a lot of work. And I think, you know, restorative dialogues at its best, by the time the two sides are actually face to face, they've both done enough of their own work that we as facilitators don't really even need to do anything. We just step back and watch the process unfold. Right. And so I think recognizing that like there's so much harm that is happening that we want healing to happen right now. But if we're really serious about unpacking the generations of harm, that it's long-term work that like committing to healing through a conflict, isn't just, all right, I'm going to have a conversation with this person tomorrow and it's going to be over, but it's really a commitment to a lifelong process. And I think that's, that it's hard, you know, because so much harm is happening right now that we need to stop. And so how do we hold that tension of things needing to to move right now, but also acknowledging that this is generations and generations of work that's ahead of us? Yeah, and I think some to to that point too is that we sometimes I think of obscure or uh kind of leave to the last moment the the need for healing. So even in processes I've I've witnessed there's a a kind of rush to engage or have parties engage with one another. Um, But there hasn't been an attention on what actually do do people need to heal? Have people actually had space to feel what's there? Um, I think the way we get so trained inside of punitive systems is we got to rush to a court and get a decision, get a ruling on what happened. But we miss that ingredient of like, what would this? What would be the pace of this process if healing were at the center? What would be the next step if healing were at the center? It feels like we miss that critical component so often when we um, are trying to create processes around transforming conflict or or addressing conflicts. My experience. Yeah, and knowing that, like sometimes taking space is actually the best way to stay in relationship, right? Mm-hmm. It it, it mm-hmm. feels. Um, yeah, uh, uh, not natural at times, but I think oftentimes giving ourselves space to not be in relationship with someone is actually the best way to move towards reconciliation and that it's okay if that's what you need to really name that. I think oftentimes we put so much pressure for us to like, oh, we have to stay in relationship, we have to stay in relationship, and that could, that perpetuates a pattern of harm. Um, and I think it's really important to to know that space and time is a part of the process for healing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's something I want to ask you about, but I don't know that I actually want to talk about this in the podcast. So I'm a little bit hesitant. That's what's happening for me right. right now. Um, just because I feel like there's so much conversation happening around cancel culture and anti-cancel culture. And I have been personally so reluctant to engage in that conversation uh, I, I don't feel adherent to, oh, I'm in, this is what I believe is the way to engage with every conflict, or I don't feel like I'm on a side of that debate, I guess is how I feel. Um, but it feels important to just touch on it if we're talking about conflict. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on kind of that that conversation or that argument that seems to be happening in the public around um, cancel culture and anti-cancel culture and how we actually address 
harm or how we actually address conflict? If you have any thoughts. Uh, so many thoughts on that. So many thoughts on <laughs> I that. I bet. I was actually, yeah, it's a, it's a big thing. I was actually just listening to a really beautiful conversation between um, a dear friend of mine, Sonia Shah and Adrian Marie Brown, who just published the I book, saw that. Not Cancel Us. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, folks listening to this haven't, haven't checked out uh, that, that, that new book, Re- definitely recommend it. Really nuanced perspective on what's happening around that. But I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is like, there's a lot of harm happening in the world. Right. And we need to find ways to address that harm. And I think one of the biggest conversations that we need to have in our society and in our culture is what does accountability actually mean and what does it look like? There's a, mm-hmm. a beautiful Zen Buddhist teaching that says words are fingers pointing at the moon, but it's not the moon itself. And we always use words like accountability and peace and nonviolence and restorative justice, but we rarely actually have the conversation about what does that actually mean? And so to me, you know, accountability is, is not something you can shove down someone's throat. Yeah. Right. People talk about community accountability processes and oftentimes use the language of transformative justice and, and restorative justice, and then come up with a list of demands for the person that perceived, that was perceived to have caused harm. And there's no space for dialogue and there's no space for that person to be able to, to, to be engaged fully in that process. And, you know, I talked about it a little bit in my book too, like to me, accountability at its best is an act of love because you want growth from the person that caused the harm. Right. Um, and I think it's possible, like, you know, again, I, I go back to like how privileged I am to be able to do this work with incarcerated communities. And I remember this one dialogue that we held between an incarcerated person and the mother of the young man that he murdered 20 years ago. And there was, I mean, I could say so much about that dialogue, but there was this one moment where the mother, the the man, the incarcerated man was, was completely breaking down in tears. And the mom reached out her hands and took hold of his hands. And she said, you know, I had a dream last night that I needed to hold your hands because these are the hands that took my son's life and I needed to have a different relationship with them. Mm. Mm. Wow. And just... You know, I'm sitting there watching this happen. Like, what did I do to earn such mm-hmm. a privileged seat at this table that I get to witness such deep healing? And, you know, I've seen conversations like that. So I know what we're capable of, of as human beings, right? Like, I know what we're capable of bouncing back from. And I know what accountability could look like, even in the cases of the most extreme forms of violence and harm. So I know that it's possible to do this differently. I know that it's possible to hold someone accountable for harm in a way that you're still able to hold their hands through it all. And so, yeah, a big part of cancel culture for me is, is about yeah, how do we create spaces for people to cultivate a sense of accountability without casting them out of society. Because I think the moment that people are afraid of being cast out of society, they get defensive. It's natural. Like we're relational beings. If we feel like our relationships are going to be cut off, Mm -hmm. we're going to get defensive. But the more defensive we get, the further away we're getting from real accountability, right? Um, because accountability requires real remorse and an acceptance of the harm that you committed. And if you're getting defensive, that is the opposite of accountability. So yeah, how do we, how do we do that work? And I think that's, that, that's the big question that we need to be asking ourselves is what does accountability look like? Mm-hmm. 
I think just to kind of throw some more in the mix too, uh, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is that, you know, I think the pushback that I've heard to some of what you shared and that perspective is that there ends up being an overemphasis on the person who may have caused harm in any particular incident. Um, And again, I mean, I think that points to how can we hold multiple things at once so that we can be attentive to a person's transformation. We're also attentive to if someone has been harmed, what what healing is actually required? What resources do we actually have? Who is actually there to hold? And uh, I think that that can get missed, especially when we start getting into kind of binary thinking. Like, okay, if we're paying attention to getting this person involved in the accountability accountability process, and we are necessarily kind of ignoring the needs of the survivor. Um, but there's also this piece around. Um, you know, I think if there's not a community around us, if there aren't people, friends, your homies, whoever, who are also there in the process, if a survivor or someone who has been harmed is trying to lead a process, that to me feels like a failure of the community and not just about um that a survivor should be supported through a process. They don't necessarily need to be designing all the processes for accountability. And I think that's often the case. And I think that's where a lot of the feelings of resentment or frustration that we're tending to those who've been harmed can come from because people feel like they're kind of holding more than is their share. I don't know if you've seen that in kind of community spaces too. Yeah, definitely. In community spaces, as well as like clearly with the criminal justice system as well. Like I've talked to so many survivors who say that like their experience going through the quote unquote accountability process through the criminal system was nothing more than like just re-traumatizing for them because they didn't feel supported at all in any of the, the ways that they needed healing. And the criminal justice system actually doesn't focus at all on the needs of the quote unquote victim, right? And the survivor, like their healing is not even part of the equation. And so I think because most of us grew up with that system as the default, it's hard for us to really think about how, what does it mean to hold space for survivors of harm and what do they really need? And that's a whole other thing that we need to explore as well. And, you know, I I recently learned a thing um, that comes from the the tradition of Jainism. Uh, There's a teaching called Anekantavada. And Anakantavada translates to like many-sidedness or not one-sidedness. And within this concept, they have seven different understandings of truth. And they say in every truth, mm-hmm. there exists seven truths, which is in some ways it is, in some ways it is not, in mm-hmm. some ways it is and it is not, in some ways it is and it is indiscernible, in some ways it is not and it is indiscernible, in some ways it is, it is not, and it is indiscernible. Hmm. And Hmm. all of those things are happening at the same time, right? So I think when there's an instance of harm, there's just so many truths that are happening. And like you said, we need to kind of get out of this binary and be able to hold all of that. Hmm. Thank you for that. Thanks for going down that road with me, because honestly, I was a little nervous to do it. Are we going to talk about cancel culture? We did it. Um, I guess I want to ask you, you know, you said, I've heard you say a couple of times that the slowing down, that's part of what we have to do in this moment. And can you say more about kind of what your practices are? What do you do every day that helps you find that rhythm or that pace that serves 
this work that you're doing in the world? Yeah, there's another quote that I heard once. Um, someone told me that slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And it's another hmm. paradox type of thing that I think there's a hmm. real urgency in us needing to learn how to slow down. Um, there's another quote that I heard from an elder that was at a conference once who said that, you know, the work for social change is a marathon and the difference between a marathon and a sprint is in how we breathe. So we need to learn to breathe. And so for me, it's finding moments throughout the day just to take a breath. And as someone who's had a meditation practice for a long time, I get much more out of a single intentional breath than I did 10 years ago before I started my practice. Right. So all mm -hmm, of these things mm -hmm. take practice, but the more we practice things like slowing down, I remember having a conversation um, a couple of years ago from with a friend of mine who just uh, came home from prison after a 19 year sentence. And he talked about how he really notices and appreciates the scent of flowers every time he walks by some flowers and mm -hmm. how I take that for granted. And so just like slowing down enough to smell some flowers to feel the, the, the wind across my face and just finding these moments throughout the day just to like take a breath. And I think all of that mm -hmm. contributes to my ability to remain grounded when I'm in a conflict or remain grounded when I'm at a mm -hmm. direct action. You know, and I think, um, you know, when we go to like nonviolent trainings, I think we're used to learning about how to like form blockades and how to work with the media and all that kind of stuff. But I think these kinds of emotional regulation tools actually needs to be incorporated into our practices and preparation for direct action work. Like, how do we slow down when we're facing a row of riot police that are getting ready to tear gas us? Because we can't respond to that moment from a place of panic. We need to somehow learn to be grounded. And so, yeah, the short term emotional regulation tools like breathing, like body work, but also the long term process of healing our own traumas. Because that contributes to our inability to slow down yeah. as well. Right? So, yeah, a lot of things. Absolutely. All that unhealed trauma manifests as reactivity because it takes exactly. you, it's a time traveling mechanism to take you back to another time. I, I realize that we didn't, we haven't so far kind of given you the space to talk about um, the nonviolence aspect. You've mentioned it a few times throughout our conversation, but I just wanted to. I think there's a way, maybe I'll root it here, is like, I feel like my work is deeply informed by nonviolence. And yet, I realized, I think when your book came out, that I sometimes hesitate to say that. Me too. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's because of the way that the dichotomy around violence, nonviolence has been set up and the and the stories I think people have, people that are doing change work, amazing work in the world, the stories that we have about what nonviolence means and how it, it um, is almost an assault to our dignity. I think sometimes we hold it that way. It's either um, that my dignity is important, like nonviolence, I'm not going to just let people run over me type of thing. I'm sure you hear that all the time. So mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just break down when you talk about nonviolence, what do you mean and what do you mean in relationship to this this understanding we have of nonviolence versus kind of violence. Yeah, so much I could say about that too. Um, I, I, if if it's cool, I'll, I'll share a story um, that I share a lot because I think it's the it's the perfect example of it. 
Um, I think, you know, oftentimes these criticisms of nonviolence are, are super, super valid. And oftentimes they're not talking about nonviolence as I understand it, right? It's, it's, it's a misunderstanding of nonviolence that comes from the fact that the idea of nonviolence, the word nonviolence, and in some ways, nonviolent movements have been co-opted and have been colonized. Um, and I oftentimes talk about how the idea that not being violent equates to nonviolence is the biggest and most dangerous misunderstanding of the idea of nonviolence. And I oftentimes talk about a story when there was a fight um, that was happening right outside of my apartment years ago, and there was a woman on the ground who was getting beat. And I was taking a nap when it had started. So I woke up and I ran downstairs and, and, and ran across the street to break up this fight. And by the time I had gotten down there, about 15 of my neighbors had heard the commotion and they had all uh, come outside and they were just watching this woman get beat, not doing anything to help. And I always argue that all of my neighbors who were just watching this woman get beat were practicing nonviolence in the sense that they weren't being violent, right? They weren't the ones throwing the punches. They weren't the ones throwing mm -hmm. the kicks. And I think that's how a lot of people understand the idea of nonviolence is like, as long as I'm not being violent, as long as I'm not punching anyone, throwing any Molotov cocktails, breaking any windows, that's me practicing nonviolence. And to me, nonviolence isn't about what you don't do. It's much more about when you see violence in your community, what are you going to do about it? How are mm -hmm. you going to interject yourself in the situations of violence and injustice and, and work to transform it? Right? It's easy to see the destruction of climate, the, the destruction of Black lives and say, oh, well, that's none of my business. I'm just going to chill over here and, and do nothing about it. Right? That would be practicing nonviolence if your understanding of nonviolence is limited to not being violent. Right? But to me, a, a, a nonviolent approach is about like, what are you going to do to transform a culture of violence? Right. And, uh, you know, one, I think another really important piece of this is that for me, the role of nonviolence is not to cast judgment on communities who choose to use violence as a form, particularly of self-defense. And that there's a lot of value in using violence to keep you alive and to keep your communities alive. But one thing that violence can never do is to strengthen and heal relationships. And so to me, a commitment to nonviolence isn't saying that we can never use violence. It's saying that even if we get to a place where we have to use violence to protect ourselves, that's not enough, right? Like we need to be doing more than just barely surviving to live another day. We need to be doing the work of reconciliation and healing relationships. And so to me, nonviolence is, is, is an exploration of like, what more do we need beyond violence to protect our, our lives? What are we going to do to transform a culture of violence? I think that's what you said. That feels really critical because I, it, it, you know, as you were speaking about how people interpret nonviolence, I'm like, oh yeah, that approach I think the way that I've interfaced with that perspective throughout my life and throughout my organizing work is that people are like, be quiet, exactly. <laughs> settle down, don't be so loud, don't make a fuss, you know, um, get out of the street. But that's the way that it ends up trying to shape my own response or our, our, our responses to the things that are happening to and in our community. So um, I, I love that the way you're bringing it forward is like, no, what actions will you take? What will you do uh, to transform the way that we live right now? It feels, it, you know, we're in such a moment where violence and the, the culture of violence is, is 
I think there's always been, not, not always, but for a long time, there's been a culture of violence here. But right now it's, it's so, I guess, glorified is the word that I want to use. But I can go on any website and they may be kind of advertising, you know, a bulletproof vest at this moment. There's kind of a militarization of the, of the everyday of all of us that's happening right now. Um, so it feels like a scary thing to even enter into a conversation for me around nonviolence. I'm like, nonviolence while people are ramping up, while <laughs> your neighbors are, you know, having militarized weaponry. Like how, how do we have that kind of principle in a moment where the culture of violence feels like it's growing and is so central? Yeah. And, you know, for me, I want to create a movement where long term we acknowledge that violence itself is the thing that we're trying to defeat. Right? That mm-hmm. as long as we have a culture where we feel like we can justify using our power to impose our will over another person, then mm-hmm. no communities will ever have sustained peace. Right. And and actually that that idea that you were talking about of like, you know, how the state oftentimes quotes Martin Luther King to tell Black Lives Matter protesters to shut up and, and, and be quiet. Mm-hmm. It's a concept called negative peace that, that a peace educator named Johan Goltang came up with and that Dr. King spoke really articulately about in a, a sermon that he gave called When Peace Becomes Obnoxious, which I really recommend. Like everyone knows that the Dr. King who had a really <laughs> nice dream about black kids and white kids getting along and everything. And, you know, sermons like When Peace Becomes Obnoxious and The Crisis in America Cities and all these like radical sermons we never hear about. But in um, that sermon, you know, he talked about that sort of uh, negative peace. And he said of that, he said, it's the type of peace that um, all men of goodwill should really resist. And mm-hmm. that it is the type of peace that, quote, stinks in the nostrils of the almighty God. When we think that we can create peace by telling people who are resisting and demanding dignity to be quiet, that that is not a real peace, right? Like mm-hmm. this is another misunderstanding of the idea of peace that like if someone's screaming in my, in my face and I punch them and knock them unconscious, they're not screaming at me anymore. So did I just create peace, right? And that's the skewed way that our society tries to create peace is by telling protesters who are fighting for their lives to be quiet. Right. And to lock up all the criminals and to kill all the terrorists. And these are the ways that we try to go about creating peace. And Dr. King was very clear that from a perspective of nonviolence, that is not a real peace. That is a grossly misunderstood way of going about creating peace. That's so helpful. I, you know, it, it just helps illuminate for me the way that cultures of violence and cultures of denial really have to sit so close to one another. You have to be, uh, it has to be at the root that you want to deny kind of your accountability or your interdependence or your responsibility to something that violence really uh, needs that mechanism of denial because we are so connected. That's right. And we want to suppress that in other people. That's also a part, an extension of our denial. Wow. There's so many things I want to ask you. I want to talk to you for another hour, <laughs> but um, I want to leave us with, um, maybe this last question of what do you feel is most important for us to be practicing or embodying in this moment um, to be disrupting this culture of violence or to be building beloved community? What is it? What are, what's an emotional capacity, I guess, that we might be practicing or living or nurturing 
um, so that that world becomes more possible? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I've been doing right now, and I'm actually trying to put it down on paper as well as I work on, I'm working on another book. And it's, it's really about just when we look out in the world today, the, the level of violence and destruction that we are witnessing is unparalleled in human mm-hmm. history, right? Mm-hmm. And in nonviolence, we teach that the, the more the level of violence is escalated, the more our response to that has to escalate with it, right? Which is why, like, going to someone who is about to cause physical harm and telling them that everything is going to be okay, just take a deep breath, might not be the appropriate response. Mm-hmm. And filling out a petition for the movement for Black Lives Matter may not be the appropriate response, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I've noticed in my years of organizing is that the more we escalate our tactics of, of direct action, the more we also tend to escalate this binary worldview of us versus them, right versus wrong. Mm. And it's that Mm. binary worldview that to me is at the heart of what is destroying this planet. And so how do we, but but we also like, we need that escalation, right? Like it's not, this is not the Mm -hmm. time to be asking nicely. And so how do we escalate our tactics and create resistance movements that can harness power in a way that we haven't been able to, at least in several generations in this country, while doubling down on a commitment to healing and reconciliation? And how do we look at direct action work as a modality of collective trauma healing? And what can we learn Mm -hmm. from the work of restorative dialogues and trauma healing to take into direct action spaces, knowing that we're trying to like have a conversation with this society, with this country that it has refused to have for 500 years? Like, how do we create spaces? How do we create the power to, to force that conversation onto the table and yet create a sense of relationship and a connection so that that conversation can actually open up? You know, a lot of the things I've been thinking about is like in direct action movements, there's this culture of shut it down, like we're here to shut things down. And tactically, we may shut down a highway, we may occupy a government building, but spiritually, how do we move the spirit of we're here to open things up? And what's the work that we need to do in our own personal lives and in our movement spaces that allow us to heal through our own traumas enough? so that we can be agents of creating space to heal the trauma of this nation, right? Like if we haven't worked through our own stuff, then we're not in a position to go around pointing fingers saying those people need to to work on their own stuff, right? And so I think we're really in a place where we really need to look seriously about how we're building relationships in our own movements, how we're holding each other accountable in our own movements, um, how we're growing and how we're challenging ourselves, all of that for the explicit purpose of engaging in direct action in healthier and more skillful ways. Wonderful. I feel like there's so many other conversations we need to have on the podcast and off the podcast, but I feel really excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Kazu, for your time. Thank you so much. Finding Our Way is co-produced and edited by Eddie Hemphill, co-production and visual design by Devin Delania. Assistant Editing by Amy Pignon. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever it is that you listen to this podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at Finding Our Way Podcast or email us with questions, suggestions, or feedback 
at findingourwaypod at gmail.com. You can also help sustain the podcast by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. You can find us on Patreon at Finding Our Way Podcast. Thank you for listening to Finding Our Way. Finding Our Way.